Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 18. Romans, chapter number 18. Pastor, we're studying 1 Corinthians tonight. Why are we going to Rome? I mean, Acts. I said Romans. There is no Romans. That was a test, and you failed it. There is no Romans, chapter 18. Okay, Dixie, you can stop looking. Wow, pastor's, pastor's daughter is looking quizzically at me. <laughs> Acts chapter 18, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 18 <clears throat> is where we're going to be. We're going there because Acts 18 covers the visit from Paul into the, book of, uh, into the city of Corinth. And then we'll go to the book of Corinthians, all right? 1 Corinthians, all right. So let's, let's begin reading in chapter 18 of the book of Acts and verse number 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, that is a tent maker, by the way, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one, of, uh, one that worshipped God, whose house was joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, <coughs> for I have much people in this city. And he continued there uh, a year and six months, teaching the word of God uh, among them. So let's, let's, uh, let's take a moment and pray. We'll come back to this in just a little while uh, and draw some notes out of this scripture we've just read. Lord, we love you and we thank you today for your love. Thank you for the joy of knowing Charlie Brown is in heaven. What a peace that is. Thank you for that wonderful day that I remember so clearly in which I was able to share the gospel with Charlie and he opened his heart to Jesus Christ. I, I'm grateful. I pray you'll bless. And um, Lord, just help us to always be busy about telling people about you. I pray that you'll bless Max and be with him. Give him comfort. For Linda and Betty, help them. Strengthen them. And God, do in our midst what only you can do. And we'll thank you. In the name of Christ, my Savior, I do pray these things. Bless our, our service tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. When the Apostle Paul came to the city of Corinth, it was a cosmopolitan city of 600,000 people. 
Now that's a big city today, but you can imagine how enormous that it was in that day and time. Paul would spend, uh, Paul would spend 18 months there, a year and a half of his life he invested there uh, in Corinth and in establishing a Corinthian church there for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Corinth um, at one time had been destroyed by the Roman general Mummius. Now, that's an unusual name. I don't know if it was because he was extremely stiff as a child, certainly wasn't double-jointed, or perhaps he loved his mummy. I don't know why he gained that name. Names had meaning in those days. But General Mummius defeated the people of Rome because they had, uh, in the Achaean War, uh, during the revolt against the Roman government, uh, they were punished for that. The people were sold into slavery, and all of their land was confiscated uh, by, the, by the Romans under mummies. Later, Julius Caesar realizes the strategic um, uh, importance of Corinth, and so he set about to rebuild the city, and he did such a good job at it that it soon became the seat of the Roman province in Achaia and one of the great centers of commerce in the world at that time. In fact, every two years, the Isthmian Games would be held there the city, be, city would be crowded with spectators and people that had come to see that. And Corinth, under the leadership of uh, uh, Caesar and others, Corinth literally became uh, a metropolis. But glitz and games weren't the only face of the city. And in fact, there was a subterranean Corinth uh, that did not meet the eye in which uh, a population of slaves worked deep in the caverns of the earth, in the smelting uh, furnaces uh, where they worked with the bronze that Corinth was world famous for uh, at, at that time. Um, there was the temple of Aphrodite, and if you understand the word Aphrodite and, and the connection that all that has with sensuality, it won't surprise you that the temple of Aphrodite uh, had a thousand consecrated, dedicated prostitutes that worked in that place, and people would come from many miles around to worship there. And uh, it was a city of, of incredible immorality. And in fact, the slaves that worked in the subterranean culture uh, beneath the surface were encouraged to engage in immorality because the thought was this will produce another generation of slaves and of people that will work in our, in our uh, caverns and, and uh, smelting plants and so on and so forth. It was so wicked, Corinth was, that it earned the title the Greek Sodom. When, when Paul wrote that extremely graphic description in Romans chapter 1 verse 21 through 32 where he talks about men leaving the natural use of the man etc 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 burning in their lust one to another etc 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 professing them to be wise they became fools 
They worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator. And he gives a long list at the end of the chapter and says, knowing that they which do such things are worthy of death. You know, not only do them, but they, they, they rejoice in, in those that do them. They glory in it. That chapter was written while the Apostle Paul was in Corinth. And so probably as he pins that, as he pins that graphic description, he's probably drawing that description from the culture in which he was in at the time, writing to the Roman Christians. He's in Corinth and he's writing to them of the things that he sees in the world about him. Um, now, um, what happens with the book of 1 Corinthians? And as you read there, you'll find that Paul had written another letter earlier. It's not a part of the canon of the scriptures. But now he writes the book that we call the 1 Corinthians, the, the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that was written to them. And when he writes this, he's in Ephesus. Okay? He's been in Ephesus now more than two years, and, uh, or, or two years, and he's on his third missionary journey. Okay? So he's in Ephesus. He's ministering uh, among the people there. And while he's there ministering in Ephesus, he receives visitors from the church at Corinth. Okay? So they, they come to him. And uh, they're bringing to him a report of the condition. It's a state of the church address to a certain degree. I have no doubt that Paul had questions about the church where he had spent 18 months establishing and wants to know how are they doing, what's going on in the church, what's happening in the church. And I'm sure that he had many questions for them. And through that conversation, through that conversation, uh, he's going to determine that things, things in the church aren't doing very well. In chapter 1 of the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're there now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'll go there, we'll look at a verse of Scripture, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Chapter 1, verse 11 Paul said, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So Chloe had left um, Corinth and had come to uh, Ephesus where Paul was at and, and visits with him. And during that time, the conversation uh, begins about how, what is the condition now? How's the church uh, in Corinth doing? And the report wasn't an encouraging one. There was squabbling among the members. If you read the book of Corinthians, the first book here in particular, the first letter, you'll find out that there were rivalries based on personalities. We'll look at that in just a moment. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Okay. So there are rivalries based on personalities. There's immorality in the church that is being ignored by the leadership and by the people. They're suing each other. <laughs> Where do we get our guidelines for lawsuits? We get it from the book of uh, Corinthians. We, we find out in his letter, 
Paul deals with that. You're bringing your issues before a world that's lost and your reproach to Christ. Okay? And so um, uh, there's rampant abuse of the gifts of the Spirit. People are jumping up over here and jumping up over there, and all they're trying to do is steal the spot like I got the better gift while ignoring the gift of helps and administrations and other things. They're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to grab the spotlight and, and, and uh, stand center stage by their, uh, by their own giftedness. Okay? They're abusing the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit were given for the edification of the church that, that's not the building, that's the people that are there. So, 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 so my gift should edify you, your gift should edify me, but they were doing it for glory. So like a person that stands up to sing and rather singing to be blessed, they're going to sing to exhibit their voice and they're going to give you a side profile as they sing so that you might be impressed by their, their, uh, their beauty. Okay. Now this church... The church at Corinth. When you, read, when you read the letter from cover to cover, you have to become impressed with the fact that this is probably the most gifted church in all of the New Testament as far as just what we would consider these people have got talent. I mean, Metropolis City, probably a big church, and a lot of people vying to do something in that church. Years ago, in the early years of our church, I asked our church, what do we want as a church? What would we like to be known as? And we went down through a list of things. Financial? Do we want to have a great choir? Do we want to, do we want to have famous, locally famous people come to us? What, what's, what's our goal? What are we really looking at and trying to do? And one of the things that we determine was not that we be gifted, not that we be talented, but that we be faithful. Because the one thing that's required of stewards is that a man be found faithful. And I'd rather us have a faithful church than any other kind of church at all. And the problem with the church at Corinth was that they were gifted, but they were also the most unspiritual probably of, of the entire lot with the exception of perhaps the church at Laodicea. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment and then we're going to get right into some applicational points that I want to draw and, and that'll drag us back into Romans chapter 18 in a little bit and uh, Acts chapter 18 in a little bit and some other places here. But, but let, me, let, let, me, um, let me remind you of this. When you and I talk about 1 Corinthians, we talk about a book. Okay, this is a book. This is the book of 1 Corinthians. We say that because it's the book of the Bible. If, if you want to get technically, we would call it an epistle. Now, many of you think that an epistle is the wife of, of an apostle. But that's not the case, okay? So here's, here's an epistle written from Paul to the church at Corinth. So listen to me carefully. This is a letter, okay? This is a letter written by the hand of the Apostle Paul. I mean, Chloe went to report. He asked questions. Is Paul going to come visit? Are we going to have an Apostle visit with us? That, that was a huge deal, by the way. 
But rather than visiting, Paul sits down and pins them instruction. Boy, what instruction it was. He confronts them about their ill use of gifts. He confronts them about the lack of purity and the immorality that they have allowed in the church. He confronts them. He confronts them about their personality cult. He confronts them about all of these things. And in, in, in typical Paul fashion, he doesn't, he doesn't swallow hard when he's doing so. He very boldly states what the Holy Spirit of God inspires him to write. But I, I want, the picture I want you to get is an assembly of people, much like we have in this room uh, 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 tonight, that are being read a letter. It's announced Paul, Paul sent us a letter. Paul sent us a letter. We're going to read it on such and such a night. And so everybody gathers together and, and with bated breath, they sit there listening as, as, as the, the person in their assembly stands and, and takes the, uh, the paper uh, and begins to read what Paul the Apostle has written to them. And so as we read this book, we read, this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. As they heard with their ears the letter being read, they knew directly that Paul was writing specifically to them and dealing with their problems and the things that were wrong in their church. So, so get, that, get that feeling, get that picture. Now, having said that, I want to just say this to you. That the way that we're to read the Bible ourselves is to realize that we all are cut out of the same cloth as everybody else that was ever written to or dealt with in the Scripture. And so though we realize this was written by Paul to the church at Corinth, we ought to take it personally ourselves and examine ourselves in light of this and find out where we are as a people, as a church, and as individuals, and as families. We ought to allow it to personally deal with us. I'm not, I don't go home and say, well, I'll tell you one thing. In fact, in my Bible reading right now, I'm in, I'm in uh, Genesis and devouring some things there. And, but, but, but I don't go home and, and just say, well, you know, que sera, sera, that's, that's to Jacob and Joseph and all that group. I don't go home and say, well, boy, he nailed the church at Corinth. No, I got to find out what God's saying to me myself because this book is a letter to me. And so I have to allow the Spirit of God to make it very personal with me. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this is that we are at war with the culture. Okay? We are engaged in a culture war. Now, when you, when you use that phrase, it's not in the Scripture, culture wars. It's not in the Bible. But, but the culture wars are very much there, aren't they? And, and in fact... Culture wars is a, is, a, is a term that we've become very familiar with, uh, hadn't we? It's not exclusive, though, to our generation or to our day and time. To whatever degree, listen carefully, to whatever degree, to whatever degree, there has always been war between the New Testament church and the culture that is in the world. Let me give you a 
a couple of verses that will indicate that. In Paul's second letter, which will be there in our next study, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says in chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What, what does he mean? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Well, it means you don't grab a sword and go decapitate somebody. Okay? It means you don't go to an abortion clinic with a gun and kill the doctors that are there. It means that our, our, our weapons aren't fleshly weapons. You know, it's, it's not, you ever see the Middle Eastern deal? You know what a mall is? We shop at a mall. They hit each other with a mall. You know, this is a big thing with spikes sticking out of it. First of all, it would take quite a guy to sling that. Second of all, who wants to catch it? And I mean, it's just unbelievable, that kind of stuff. They just bludgeoned each other to death. The sword of William Wallace is incredible. It's just just gargantuan sword this guy picked up and swung and, you know, took out the whole front line of the enemies that were coming at him. What Paul is saying is that's not what we do as Christians. The weapons of our warfare are not, they're not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Anybody got any idea what those might be? Well, prayer, you think? You think prayer would be a weapon? Okay, you don't. I'm sorry. I should not have brought that up. Yeah, prayer would be one. Um, uh, uh, witnessing and soul winning would be the other. Okay? There's plenty of, you know, the Word of God is a sword. It's a two-edged sword. So, so that's a weapon that we have. And, 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 and so um, there's a culture war. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul wrote his son in the ministry, and he said in 1 Timothy 1, 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. So Paul's not talking about a physical battle where we go out and say, this is, we taken over. No, Paul's talking about a spiritual battle where we do our fighting with the spiritual weapons that God has placed at our disposal. It's a lot easier to punch somebody than it is to pray for them. But punching them will do no good. You can scream at people all day long and demand and yell and holler, but you know what? When you get on your knees and you pray on your knees, what happens is they don't walk away with a bruised face, they walk away with a changed heart. Because prayer goes to the depths uh, of people. I, I was at a meeting, I was at a meeting sometime back, and uh, a priest was bragging on, he was making a speech, and he was bragging on the great revival that took place with Charlemagne. And I sat there and laughed hysterically inside I wanted to raise my hand and say, Sir, have you ever studied any history besides what was penciled by your people? You know how Charlemagne had a great revival? He stuck swords under people's chin and said, Convert or die. That's not conversion. That's not real revival. And so Charlemagne goes and converts the whole world around him. Why? They wanted to eat their next meal and live for the next sunrise. And so that's not how you do, that's not how you convert people. Ask Magellan, okay, it didn't work well for Magellan, okay. 
and others that, that used that type of conversion tools. So notice in verse chapter 1, look at verse 2, okay? Everybody with me? Verse 2, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Unto the, what's the next word? Church, Church. okay. All right, stay with me. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, okay? So there's two things. I want you to, I want you to underline in your mind here. You've got the church, and then you've got Corinth. And between those two, there's more than just those few words. There's a great gulf fixed. The church and Corinth. What is a church? It's an ecclesia. It is a called out. It's not just an assembly. There are other assemblies that have nothing to do with God. There, in fact, there were assemblies that were, that were mobs that were coming together to break the law. What is a church? A church is a called out assembly, called out by God, called out by God uh, of baptized believers who unite uh, in a faith in Jesus Christ. That's, they're, they're called out of the world, okay? Uh, in, order to, uh, in order to serve the Lord together. So there's a great gulf between the church and between Corinth, and the gulf is between what they believe, what they value, and how they operate them lives. Corinth had been founded by Julius Caesar. The church had been founded by Jesus Christ. The great focus of Corinth was commerce. Okay? The great focus of the church was Calvary. Corinth peddled pleasures. The church preached purity. We'll see that uh, here in the book. Corinth was a product of the world. The church was a product of the word. And so there's a great gulf between the two. Now, the church, here's the church of God, here's Corinth. There's a conflict between those two. And it is so in every single city. We just, we just took on a host of church planters we talked about. Did you know this? Did you know that in every city that they go to, there's not going to be a welcome mat rolled out and saying, thank you, we're glad you're here. There's going to be conflict. Do you know why? Because the God of this world is going to see to that. i never forget when I went over to India and, and they, they protested us being there handed out leaflets calling for our death. And while I was in the stadium preaching, they were circling, literally circling, circling the stadium, uh, having a protest about what we were doing within the stadium. <coughs> Excuse me. And I remember talking to the guys, and I remember saying to them that when you get near the den of a lion, he gets angry because you're, you're, messing, you're messing with his brood. You're, you're on his territory. And, and, and I just want to tell you that at this moment where we are, Satan has laid claim to this world. Jesus is going to boot him off one day and set up a thousand-year kingdom reign. And he's, he, he's going to usher Satan out. But right now, Satan is the god of this what? World. Okay? And so... And so these guys that are going to plant churches, one of the reasons why I go to these meetings and try to be encouragement to them is because I know they're going to face opposition and I'm trying to shoot straight with them and let them realize it's not all going to be romanticism. There is a, 
There is a great romanticism in church planning and the pioneering movement. I'm going to go carve a spot out for God. And, and that, there's a lot of romanticism in that. Well, there's also reality. And the reality is there are going to be times people are going to leave you. And that people that are there in the beginning, some of them are just going to be scaffolding to help get you up. It's not that you use them as scaffolding. It's that they're not going to stay. And people that you think will be with you forever will walk out on you in a heartbeat. <clears throat> My pastor, after 40 years of pastoring the same church, I sat down with him one day at a meal in Savannah, Georgia. And I said, Preacher, can I ask you this question? After pastoring a church for 40 years, what is it that you didn't expect? And he said this to me. With, he didn't even hesitate. He didn't even take a moment and act thoughtful. He said to, this to me. He said that after, I'm, after I marry people, I'm there when their children are born. I'm there with, when they have their surgeries and through their crisis all of their life. They will walk out of our church and walk away without ever even giving me a phone call. So I've just, I never was prepared for that. And I, I want to just tell you, I just want to tell you, that, that, that Satan is working and all these young people that are going out to do a work for God, they're going to have disappointments. Why? Because the roaring lion is there trying to bring divisions and things in, into a church. Now, the church at Corinth, remember they're in a metropolis. Okay, metropolis is going, going I mean, it's, the church is growing. But what happens is it invades the church, it infects the church, and it stunts the growth of the church. This is what Andrew Bonar said, preacher of many years ago. He said this, he said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. And alas, I looked for the world and I found it in the church. And, and the most deadly thing for us as a New Testament church is to get to the place to where we allow the world in and we become infected by the culture that is around us. And rather than, rather than taking a stand against it, we sign a peace treaty with it and we allow the world to seep into the church. And uh, a lot of times you do that to try to become friends with a world that's no friend of grace and we try to somehow take a shortcut to, to the top. Second thing I want you to notice, not only, is it there a, not only is there a culture war being waged and we're in the middle of it, second thing I want to, lesson I want to, applicational truth I want to apply lesson-wise out of this book to us is number two, there is no room for celebrity status in God's work. There's no room for celebrity status in God's work. Now, this church is in a celebrity city that celebrates celebrity status. Okay, that's, that's where they're at. I mean, entertainment. Bigger, better. Bigger, better. Bigger, bigger is always better. And so they're, they're throwing all the glitz and glamour all around them. It's bright lights everywhere they go. Bright lights. Okay. And so, so um, this church winds up being very busy erecting pedestals 
to people within the church. So, so they're going to build a pedestal for somebody. And they're going to place that person on a pedestal so that they can have a celebrity in their who, who wants just an average old preacher? I mean, come on. I mean, who, who, wants, who wants a leader that's not known? And so they're spending time amongst themselves fighting and arguing over who built the best pedestal and who has the best man sitting on the pedestal that they built. Okay? And we're so carnal, we're so carnal that we actually build pedestals to ourselves. And we try to elevate ourselves to celebrity status. And we set up systems and programs and ministries and all sorts of things so that we can be seen as, as somebody that is really somebody. Let me, let me go with you to third chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now get your pencil out or your pen out, your highlighter, because there's a couple of words in here you need to underline. All right? And I, brethren, he writes to the church, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. Ouch. Ouch. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as unto, here's the word, carnal. Couldn't, I couldn't talk with you like you were spiritual because you're carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Boy, that... And that's pretty blunt. I mean, if you think about it, you're just an infant. This is condescending, but it's true. Verse 2, I have fed you with milk. <laughs> okay, you're not seeing the humor here. I, look, I fed you with milk. He's saying basically you want your baba, Gavin. Okay, no, that's not it. All right, Gavin. Gavin, would that insult you if I said Gavin doesn't eat meat, Gavin doesn't like steaks, he likes a baba, okay? That, that would be an insult, wouldn't it? Okay, maybe not. All right, here we go. So, so he's writing, these are, these are grown people. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to hear it, neither yet now are ye able. Watch, for ye are yet, here's the word again, carnal. He's reminding me. He said right off, you're carnal. He goes on down a little bit and says again, you're carnal. For whereas there is there among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not, here's the word again, carnal, and walk as men. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Okay. You know what the word carnal means? It means fleshly. Let me put it out in, in definition form for you. This is what carnal means. Carnal means that you're so fleshly that you look unregenerate. That's literally what that means. It carries with it, in its definition, it carries with it the word unregenerate. Now, these were not unregenerate people, but they were living like it. What Paul is saying there, when I look at you from a distance, I can't tell you're saved. You look unregenerate. You look just like lost people do because you haven't grown. I can't give you meat. You can't have any true growth. You're still on a spiritual baba. Okay? And, and, and so this is, this is, this is powerful language. Now, why did he call them carnal? You know why he called them carnal? Because, because they were worshiping men. Now, look at me and listen to me. There's nothing more carnal than that. 
There's nothing that is more of an insult to the God of creation, to a holy God, than for a man to be set upon a pedestal when only God deserves a throne. Kingmakers, kingmakers amongst us, people that, that, that would crown themselves king. When Napoleon ascended the stairs, if you ever go to the Louvre in, in, in Paris, there's a picture of Napoleon reaching out and taking the crown from the Pope's hands and placing it upon himself because he says, basically, I, I receive my crown from no man. I crown myself. And, and, and that's what we've done today. We've, we've, we've crowned ourselves. And notice what he says in verse 5. Who then is Paul? Well, wait a minute. Who's writing this? Who's writing this? Paul. So you know Paul is saying, who am I? Now, this is transparent and honest. Who am I? I'm Paul. You know who Paul was? You know who Paul was? Paul's a guy with blood-stained hands. He has blood-stained hands. He's going to write in the 13th chapter, we'll go there in just a little bit, he's going to write about love. Here's a guy that didn't know what love was all about until he met Jesus. He hauled people off that were screaming for their lives and children were standing at the door crying for their mom and dad and hauled them to be executed. Okay? When he was arrested by Christ on the Damascus Road, as we studied in our Sunday school class, Paul was going there to kill people. Here's a guy that had blood stained on his hands, you see. And so he's, he's, he understands what mercy is all about. You know what he says about himself? I was the chief of sinners. And so he, he writes to them here and he says, wait a minute, by the way, who am I? Who, you think, who do you think I am? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? All we are but ministers by whom he believed. By ministers. We're just ministers. We told you about Jesus, and because we told you about Jesus, you're taking this to an extreme. I want to tell you that I love Bobby Richardson. I love him. I got a baseball bat signed by him, baseball signed by him. I got books he sent me with his name in them, his personal biography he signed for me. I love him. He led me to Christ. He told me the story that night that brought my soul to Jesus Christ as a 12-year-old boy. But I don't worship him. You see, it's, it's we, we have to get, a, and Paul said in verse number um, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God. Two words there that are key, but God, but God, but God. Whatever you do that amounts to anything, you wouldn't do it but God. You wouldn't have accomplished it but God. There's no fruit but God. There's no accomplishment but God. So, so when man erases God out of the scene and climbs onto the pedestal in God's place, it's an insult to God. These people were men worshipers. They, they were creating a personality cult. They were elevating men to a celebrity status, and that's exactly what the world does. You want to see, a, a, you want to see that? Go to Hollywood. The most shallow people in the entire planet live in Hollywood. I'm, I'm stunned. First of all, I don't give a backwards flip in a bowl of pudding what your opinion is on anything just because you're an actor. You, th you think I care? I mean, they, they, got, they got these women sitting around in this circle. Uh, what's it called? What is it? The view. I don't care what their view is. My wife loves the show. 
Uh, no, I look. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Everybody knew what it was, but they were like, "I'm not gonna. I'm not going there." What What program are you talking about, Pastor? Uh, no, really, I, I I could care less what their view is on anything. They are the most shallow. They are the most shallow, narcissistic people that ever walked the face of the earth. They love animals and kill children. I mean, it's, they're, they're, you want to talk about perverted, it's unbelievable. And, and it's an insult to a holy God. Now, look at me. It's okay to honor men who have been faithful. Nothing wrong with that. Don't, don't let the pendulum swing now where you, well, I don't, no, no. Thank God for the people that have invested in your life and, and that have loved you to Jesus. Thank God for them. Honor them. And, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with expressing your gratitude to them. But we must never worship them and put them above what they are. The best of men are just men at best. The best of men are just men at best. And whenever you see a movement, they're in every, they're in conservative movements and liberal movements. Whenever you see a movement begin to elevate a man, you can mark this down. God Almighty is heading for the front door. Okay. So be careful with that. Number three. Ready? Number three. Immorality cannot be swept under the rug. Well, there's a lot to cover. Let's let, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, everybody go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me show you something here. This is, you, you, can't, you can't do it. Boy, this is a big book, and, but we, we, all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let me show you something. So Paul writes to them, and uh, he addresses one of the problems that is going on in the church. All right, look, look at me in verse number 5. It's reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife, okay? That word father's wife means stepmother, okay? So here's a guy, he is in illicit relationships with his stepmother. It's perverted and sick. And you're puffed up, verse 2, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that had done, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of, our Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may have a new lump, uh, may be a new lump, uh, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. You know what he's saying there? He's saying this. Here's what you know. You, this is happening and you know it. It's, it's in a secret thing that the pastor can deal with. No, this is commonly reported. Everybody knows this is going on. And rather than dealing with this, you're turning a blind eye to it. And, 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 he, and he says this to him. Don't you understand that if you let leaven in, it'll let the whole thing gets contaminated by the leaven. We would say it this way, don't you know if you let cancer grow, it'll kill you? If they find cancer in your body, what do you have to do? You've got to purge it out. There's got to be surgery. You've got to take it out so that the body can become healthy again. 
And, and so he's, he's, he's writing to them, uh, and, and, and he's saying to them, this is, you can't do that. Watch. You have to put him out. Why? Because, listen to me, there, there is a, there's a canopy of protection over a local church. Read your Bible. There, there's, a, there's a, Jesus died for the church. So there's a protection. So what he's saying here, don't let him hide in your ship. You have to deal with it. Okay? And, and Matthew chapter 5 gives us uh, uh, how, to, how, how to deal with that in the book of Matthew. You're to go to them and if they confess, good. But he just simply says, you know, um, don't allow this to go undealt with. Put them out so that they can find out you can't hide in the church, you can't get by with this as we deal with Now, I want to just tell you this. Listen to me carefully. For so long, we've killed our churches all over this nation because we've swept sin under the rug. Now, I'm not talking about somebody coming to me and say, Pastor, i got a problem I need to deal with. I don't get up in the pulpit and say, hey, guess what? So-and-so's got a problem, and they're struggling with that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an open sin. I'm talking about an open sin that, that is unrepentant and and that has to be dealt with uh, of such an immoral nature that it, that, that, that it contaminates the entire church. He's dealing with purity here. So I just want to tell you, you can't do that at South Valley and get by with it. You, you, can't, you can't live immorally. You, you can't live in open sin. You can't commit adultery. You can't live in in that type of sin. In the past, we've had to deal with people that, that were involved in some things that were of a deviant nature. You have to deal with that. Why? Because the purity of the church is at stake. Now, I didn't write this, so this isn't, I, I didn't design this. It's not my church, it's his church, so I have to go by the, I have to go by the, the rule book that he gave me. And, 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 and that's what he says. And, and he says, um, Verse 13, but them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among you yourselves that wicked person. And so you have to do that. Now we're going to come back and find this guy, the guy that was put out of the church. They did it. We're going to find him in the second letter. Paul's going to deal with him again. So we'll see, as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story as we pick it up, um, as we pick it up. Uh, in, our, uh, in our next study. Let me give you the fourth thing quickly. The fourth thing, and that is that love is the greatest attribute. Now, I'm not going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to let you do that when you get home, and I'm sure you will, and I'll take, give you a test on Sunday to see if you do that. But I want to remind you that, that charity is love in action. Love is never dormant. Love, listen to me. Love isn't passive. Love is active. Remember my statement. Charity is love with what? It's work clothes on. Okay? Charity is love with its work clothes on. It's working. It's expressing. It's showing. It's evidencing. It's love. And so Paul is telling the church that the one thing that will overcome their problems within their church and will impact this wicked Corinthian culture more than anything at all in that darkened world around them is love. 
Henry Drummond, he was an old preacher that lived during the time of Dale Moody, made a statement that I want to read to you. He's talking to a group of missionaries. Listen carefully. Please listen to his words. He's talking to a group of young missionaries back in those early days, and this is what he said to them. He said, you can take nothing greater to the heathen world than the impress and reflection of the love of God upon your own character. That is the universal language. It will take you years to speak in Chinese or in the dialects of India. From the day you land, that language of love, understood by all, will be pouring forth its unconscious eloquence. It is the man who is the missionary. It is the man who is the missionary. It is not his words. His character is his message. Drummond later tells in that same book of going to Africa, into the deep recesses of Africa, and finding people there who never understood Livingston's language, but they understood his heart and that he loved them and he cared for them. And it wasn't the words of Livingston that reached them. It was the love of Livingston that reached them. There, there, there are eight negative aspects of love given in this chapter. It envieth not, it's not vaunted up, it's not puffed up, it doth not behave itself unseemly, it seeks not her own, it's not easily provoked, it thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity. Those are the things that love removes from us. Okay, so love takes things, if I love you, I won't do this to you. So because I love you, I'm not going to do that to you. Because I love my wife, I'm not going to mistreat her. I'm not going to steal from her. I'm not, I'm not going to be arrogant toward her. I'm not, I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm, I'm not going to verbally abuse her. Do you know why? Because I love her. So love removes some things out of my sinful nature that would normally be there. Then it gives us uh, six posit uh, seven positive things that it instills. It suffers long. It suffers long. Okay. It's kind. It rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things. It believeth all things. It hopeth all things, and it endureth all things. So, so th there's eight things it takes from us, seven things it puts in us, and he winds up by saying, love never faileth. Listen to me. Charity never faileth. In all the program of God, prophecies will fail, tongues will fail, uh, uh, foreknowledge, knowing the future will fail. But the one thing God will always use, charity never faileth. It's always a part of the plan of God. Last of all, ready to go back to Acts 18? Last of all, here's the last point. You ready for this? This will tie in with Sunday's message. Here we go. Last point. Sowing the seed brings fruit in unlikely places. All right, now let's, let's, let's look back in chapter 18, Verse 1, all right, Paul goes from Athens to Corinth, all right? Jump down to verse 8, because Paul's immediately beginning to preach and witness to people. What happens in verse 8? And what's the guy's name? Crispus, okay? And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So what happened to Crispus when Paul witnessed? Crispus got saved! He got saved. 
Well, what happened when he got saved? They booted him. Preacher, how do you know that? Well, I'll show you. Christmas is the ruler of the synagogue. He gets saved. We read down a little ways later, and guess what? Christmas is adios. Excuse my fluency in foreign languages. He's gone. He's been removed. Look in verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogues, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold your horses there a minute. Wait a minute. I thought Crispus was the ruler of the synagogues. He was until he got saved. Well, he got born again. So by verse number 17, he's been replaced with Sosthenes. All right? Everybody got that? Not at me. Okay, good. Now, now, go with me, go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul now is in Ephesus writing a letter back to the Corinthians, and he's got a helper there, helping him. Guess who it is? Look in verse number 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Well, Shazam. Where did he come from? He came from the very church that verse 2 says he's right unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. So here's what happened. Paul goes right into Corinth, 600,000 people. Now look at me. You know as well as I do, if a guy is the chief ruler of the synagogue, you're going to think, ain't no sense in casting seed that way. That's bad ground. He ain't getting saved. I ain't going to wait time with him. Well, Christmas got saved. He got born again. And a bunch of them believed. So he's booted out and Sosthenes is put in. So Paul would think probably, well, it happened once. That's, that's a strange deal. You know what he did? He witnessed to that guy too. You know what happened? That guy gets saved. And now he is at Ephesus with Paul. He's a co-worker with Paul. And Paul says, guess what? I'm writing this letter to you. And guess who's here with me? Sosthenes. Remember him? He was your chief ruler. And they beat the tar out of him. Why? Because he got saved. Okay? That's exactly what, what is happening here. Two very unlikely converts, Crispus and Sosthenes, both rulers of the synagogue. Now look at me. Look at me. Listen to me. Is the seed yet in the barn? And who are you? And who am I? to determine what is good ground and what is stony or thorny or wayside ground. And the reality of this, when we sow the seed, we really don't know where it's going to grow and when it's going to grow. We have no idea to judge that. We cannot see beyond the surface. And so I see a biker. Dude, he's decked out. He looks rough. Well, I ain't giving him the gospel. I'll tell you the story how I promised God I witness to somebody every day and I'm walking past this. There were like 10, ten bikers. I mean, the, no, the, no, these weren't doctors and lawyers. These were bikers. And I'm walking past them and God said, I want you to witness to them. And I said, ah, that's probably not good ground. And I kept walking. And God said, you told me you'd witness to everybody. And I, I, Lord, I understand that, but I, I don't want to waste time. I want to put, if, I, if I'm going to throw seed, I want it to be thrown on good ground. Well, that's not my choice. 
And I turned around and went back to them and I started talking to them about their motorcycles and every one of them took a track for me. I've had businessmen that wouldn't take my track, but every one of those guys took my track. Jim Delaschmidt, the head of the Hells Angels in his region, got saved and became an evangelist. You look at him and like, ah, he's not too good ground. I just read about, I just finished a book called the, the, the Last Outlaws. It's about the Dalton boys. Two, have got killed, two of them got killed in the Coffeeville raid. They tried to rob two banks and they used to be lawmen. Then they turned bad and, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, Bob and Gratt got gunned down on the street. Emmett got shot full of holes and they put him on a stretcher and said he's gone. And he lived miraculously. The doctor took out 20, 20 pellets and slugs out of him. And he lived. You know what happened later in his life? He got saved and got baptized. Emmett Dalton? The Dalton boys? Yeah, he got saved. Look, look at me. We have no way of knowing whether Crispus or Sosthenes will get saved or not. The only thing we can do is give them seed. Just give them a track. Just give them a shot. Just throw seed their way. Just tell them Jesus loves them. Just give them the opportunity and let God do the rest. That's a great story to me. That's just a great story to me. Get the seed out and you will be amazed at what God does with what you plant. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our study tonight. Father, we love you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. I pray you'll help us to learn and to let this book imprint our life. As we look forward, Lord, to Vision Sunday, this Sunday, where we share some exciting things that we're looking forward to doing and just, just thank God for the past and the good things you've done. I pray you'll bless us and help us. And I pray that everything we say and do would be pleasing to you. And we'll give you glory for all of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.